Good evening again, everyone, and welcome back to Community Church. It's good to see you tonight. It's always, always a good time whenever we can gather here on Wednesday nights and um, hear the Word of God, sit under the teaching of the Word of God, and learn from the Holy Spirit as He guides us. And it's completely my privilege to study God's Word together with you, that's for sure. But tonight, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 2 of the book of 1 John. We're studying through this book together right now. And my intent was to cover this entire chapter. There's 29 verses in this chapter. And as I begin to prepare and study and all of that, um, we're going to be covering the first two verses tonight. (laughs) So hang in there with me because there is a lot of great stuff in these two verses. And if all goes well, I hope to have everybody out of here by midnight. But actually... It's going to be impossible for us to really cover all of the truth that's even just in these two passages in just one lesson, even though it's only two verses. But we're going to try and at least hit the high points here tonight and gain an accurate understanding of what's being said here. And then next week, we're going to continue to just move forward through the book of 1 John so as to keep in view the big picture, if you will, of what John is communicating here in his letter. And hopefully that will encourage us to dig a little deeper into the book of First John in our personal studies as well as when we gather corporately here. So tonight, in chapter 2, John continues his message to believers and he says this, he says, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And we're going to talk about that, but before we get into the text tonight, would you pray one more time with me? Father, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful to be able to open up your precious word, the eternal word of God. We thank you, Lord, for preserving it all throughout history so that we can open it up tonight and glean truth and blessing from it. So as we look into this passage tonight, please, Lord, have your way. Please teach us what you will and help us to have the humility to learn and to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses read like this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So in 1 John, or in verse one here of of chapter two, John establishes the truth that believers are actually no longer bound by sin. Okay, we now in Christ have the freedom and the ability to actually refrain from sin. However, knowing that because of our sin nature, we're not always going to do that. Right. John also reveals God's gracious provision for when we do sin. And then in verse 2, of course, John proclaims the truth of Christ's atonement for the sins of the entire world. And so back up at verse 1, let's look at it a little more closely. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So the little children here in this passage are the believers to whom John is writing. And John's writing to them not only as an apostle of Christ, but also as their spiritual father in the faith. Okay, He actually refers to himself as the elder in his second and third letters. And then he gives the reason for his writing, which is so that you may not sin. 
Now in chapter 1, you'll remember John used the plural pronoun we when establishing the truth about Christ. Remember he said, we have heard. He said, we have seen and we have looked upon and so on. And then he followed that up by saying, these things we write to you that your joy might be full. That was 1 John 1, 4. So John used his full apostolic authority in conjunction with all of the other apostles to proclaim the reality of who Christ is. Okay, the word of life, chapter 1, verse 1. And to proclaim what Christ has done. He shed his blood for our sins, chapter 1, verse 7. And then to proclaim what he will do which is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, according to 1 John 1, 9. And so now, John is saying, because of who Christ is and because of what he's done and what he will do, I'm saying to you, you don't have to sin anymore. In other words, it's possible for the Christian to abstain from sin. Did you know that? That is... Of course, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7, right? Now, a lot of us Christians, we don't like to hear that, okay? Because we would just rather go on with our life however we want to and say things like, well, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, right? Okay, sort of as an excuse. And while there is some truth in that statement, it's also a very lazy way to live your life for Christ, Because Christians with that kind of attitude, they're looking for ways out of obedience. Okay, they're looking for ways out of holiness. And sometimes the painful process of sanctification, we're looking for ways out of that. I mean, we would rather have a lazy faith, it seems like at times, than a fruitful faith. But John doesn't let us off the hook that easy. Not at all. In fact, John makes his point very clear when he says, and if anyone sins, right? Which, of course, implies the very possibility of not sinning. So as Christians, we do not have to sin, okay? We now, in Christ, have another option, and which is to refrain from that sin, right? Of course we're all sinners, saved by grace, but we're also being sanctified into the likeness of Christ, and that's very important. But you see, here's the deal. Sinlessness is God's perfect standard. Okay, His purpose for us is that we do not sin. I mean, remember, our sin is what Christ took upon Himself at the cross. right? So sin is a very, very big deal to God, and we should never, ever take that lightly. I mean, the Holy Spirit could have inspired John to say, I write these things to you that you might start sinning a little bit less every once in a while. But he didn't. He didn't say that. God's plan for his children is that they walk sinless in the light of Christ. Very important. Now you might be thinking, okay, but John already told us back in the first chapter, right? In verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what gives here? And that's a good question. But I think the idea here is this. Here's the idea of of what John is telling us. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are we really concerned about sin in our life? Are we really concerned about that? I mean, does God's perfect plan for us to live without sin 
His high standard of expectation, if you will, lead us to His perfect provision for that sin. In other words, do we run to Christ in confession or do we run from Christ in rebellion? Okay? If I were to put it plainly, I could say this. Where is your heart? Right? Where is our heart? What's our attitude in relation to our sin? Are we grateful for God's provision for us in Christ to the point that we actually desire to live in obedience to Him and in obedience to His Word? Does His provision for our sin drive our desire to walk in fellowship with Him? Or do we just want to know Christ enough so that He recognizes us when we get to heaven? See the difference? But guys, we need to understand something very clearly, I think, and that's that Christ doesn't want to be our acquaintance. Christ wants to be our King. Okay, And He doesn't want us to obey Him just because we have to. Or just because we need to. No, Christ wants us to walk with Him because we want to. Right? Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the question now becomes for us is, where am I walking? <laughs> where am I walking? I mean, I'm talking about generally here now, okay? Where do I generally walk most of the time? Is it in the spirit or is it in the flesh? And I hope you know we get to decide that, okay? John said, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And walking in the spirit, okay? As Paul said in Galatians 5.16, is the same thing as walking in the light as John said in 1 John 1.7. So they're both talking about walking in a very close, intimate relationship, fellowship, that word koinonia that we talked last week about, walking in close fellowship with our Savior. That's the point. Because when you're walking in close fellowship with Christ, then you're not going to be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. It won't happen. And the key to walking in close fellowship with Christ is this, to fall more and more and more in love with His Word. That's the key. Listen to Psalm 119.105. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Amen. Right? So any believer who wants more of Christ and less of their flesh, any Christian who is ready to actually get serious about their walk with Christ is going to do so by getting serious about His word. How concerned Really, are we about our sin? Well, this is going to be reflected in how serious we are about the Word of God. Okay, how often are we in it? How much of this book do we understand? And then what we do understand, do we try to apply that to our life? Are we actually living it? Warren Wiersbe said, Obedience to God's Word is proof that we love Him. And he's exactly right. I mean, think about it. Parents, would you rather have your children obey you because they have to or because they want to? You see, a have-to kind of obedience is not love. That's law. But a want-to kind of obedience is obedience that comes from a love for the one that we hope to please and obey. It represents our love for Christ. 
It says things like, I don't want to disappoint you, Father, because I love you. Lord, I would rather be in fellowship with you than be over here fulfilling the lust of my flesh. I love your company, Lord, more than I love the company of sinners, more than I love my own sin. I love you, Lord. Father, I love your word more than my willful disobedience. Therefore, I'm going to choose to walk in the light of your word exactly where you are. That's what it sounds like. That's what it looks like. Guys, we shouldn't let ourselves be content with just using God's grace as a get-out-of-hell-free card, okay? No, Christ wants us to lovingly and willingly walk in His grace day after day after day, faith step after faith step, right? As Dr. Wearsby said, it's not enough to know the language. We must also live the life. Amen. A lot of Christians know the language. We know what to say. We know the right things to say. But that's not it. You're missing it. It's about the life that you live. Where else would you rather be as a Christian than with Jesus? I mean, where else would you rather be than in the very place where your joy is made full? Remember last week? And your fellowship with God is real and it's pure and it's full of light. There's no more guilt. There's no more shadows in the light. There's no more secret sins. Remember Psalm 19, verse 12? I mean, where else would you rather be than in the very place where your fellowship with God and other believers is actually genuine and honest and righteous, right? No more fake friendships. No more putting up walls or fake facades about who you really are on the inside, right? No more of that. Everything is right before God. Everything is right before other people. Man, doesn't that sound good? That sounds good to me. That sounds like the place that I want to be. That sounds like the place where I want to stay. John is saying it's all right right here for you. It's all right here for you in the person of Jesus Christ. You can have all of that. Christ is the word of life. Christ is the light. Okay, so walk in him and guess what? You won't sin. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. There it is again. Remember that from last week, 1 John 1.9? He is faithful. Here Paul echoes that. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, there's only one way of escape. That's it. There are not many ways. And of course, the way of escape is through Christ our Lord. He is the only way out for sinners like you and me. Only Christ can provide both forgiveness from the punishment of our sin and freedom from the power of that sin. And Jesus said, you know what? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. Guys, that's how we walk in the light. This is how we walk in fellowship with Christ through obedience to his word. But you know, Jesus, he takes it even a step further than that. Okay. 
And He gives us hope for when we do blow it. Through His provision. Okay, just like John does in his letter here. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verses 16 through 18. The very next words He said after, If you love Me, keep My commandments. He said this, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, capital H, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Thank you, Lord. That's what Jesus said. And in the meantime, while we wait for the return of our blessed Savior, John says this, Christ is still busy on our behalf in the courtroom of heaven. Listen to the last half of verse John, of, of verse 1. rather, Chapter 2. John writes, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So here we see the believer's fellowship restored. This is from God's perspective. Okay? Back in 1 John 1 9, we saw fellowship restored with the Father from our perspective. Okay? If we confess, then we are cleansed. All right? All of that guilt, all of that shame, it's removed from our conscience. But here we see that our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually standing in our place before the Father, providing the righteousness we need to be clean. Amazing. Guys, the idea here is that Christ is here pleading our case before the Holy Father, the judge of the world. Christ is our defense attorney. He's the defense counsel in the courtroom of heaven. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's talking about Christ. Wow. Believer, you have the Lord Jesus Christ pleading your case before the Holy Father right now. Right now. Jesus is defending you. Jesus is pleading on your behalf. Right now, Christ Himself is standing before the Father in your place and advocating for you. Man, don't that make you want to live for Him? Amen. Now that word for advocate here that John uses, it's the very same word that Jesus used for the word helper in the passage that I just read to you in John 14, 16. Same word. It's the Greek word parakletos, and it means comforter. Okay? So what do we learn from that? I don't want you to miss this. Here's what we learn. God not only provides payment for our sin, He also provides comfort for the sinner. Believer, you have the comfort of the Holy Spirit in you. And the comfort of Christ advocating for you. Hallelujah. And it's all based on Christ's finished work on the cross. Okay, The payment for our sins was made in full. And His blood is enough to make the worst sinner righteous. So when we mess up, when we blow it, Christ can confidently say to His Father, charge that to my account. Charge that to me. Because you see... 
Christ is a different kind of defense attorney than what we're used to. Completely different. He's not standing in the courtroom of heaven defending our innocence. No, we're guilty. He's agreeing that we're guilty before God, but he's also proclaiming that he has paid the price for our sin by becoming the propitiation for our sins. Amen. We're going to talk about that word more in just a second. But I want you to catch something else here in verse 1. John is very specific here in his use of the word Father. And it's for good reason, really. I want you to listen to what William MacDonald says about this. I love this. He writes, it says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Okay, it doesn't say we have an advocate with God, but with the Father. You see, He is still our Father even when we sin. Even when we sin, He is our Father. And this reminds us of that blessed truth that though sin in a believer's life does break fellowship, it does not break relationship. Amen. Believer, God is your heavenly Father. Don't ever forget that. I hope you know that when Christ died for your sins, He died for all of them. Every single one of them, right? Every single one of our sins, He laid His life down for. And I also hope you know that every one of your sins and my sins was in the future when he died, right? Christ gave his life for every single sin that I have committed, that I am committing, and that I will commit. Think about that. When someone is born, they can't ever be unborn, can they? Right? And the same is true with our new life in Christ, with our spiritual new life in Christ, with being born again, as Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he said to her. You know, some Christians really struggle with this idea of eternal life in Christ actually being eternal. And it's sad to me, because as far as I can tell, the Bible never ever speaks of temporary eternal life. Okay? You either have been born again and you have eternal life in Christ, or you do not. Okay? And those who do have it also have the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is advocating for them right now before God the Father in heaven. Praise the Lord. So we don't have to run around counting on our own righteousness to either get us saved or keep us saved because only the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be accepted by the Father. Think about it like this. Everybody, and I mean everybody, has been invited to the wedding feast in heaven. But only those who are clothed in the wedding garments are going to be allowed in. Listen to this parable. Jesus explains this for us in his parable of the wedding feast back in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. 
Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted, ca- and fatted cattle are killed. And all these things are ready. So come to the wedding. Verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited, talking about the Jews, were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? Because they were not willing to come. Verse 9, therefore go into the highways and as many as you find invite to the wedding. Okay, so now we see the gospel going out from the Jews to the Gentiles. Verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Guys, there are not many ways to God. Okay, there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, His Son. And only the righteousness of Christ is going to be accepted by the Father. Okay, in the wedding garment, in this parable, it represents the righteousness of Christ. That's what it represents. And all those people who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, okay, the wedding garment, they're going to be allowed into the wedding feast. That's heaven. For many are called. The invitation goes out to everybody. You're invited. You're invited. But few are chosen. The only ones who are going to be chosen to come into the wedding feast are those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. And of course, John knows this, right? So he can confidently write this in verse 2. And he himself, talking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Excuse me. And not only for ours only, but also... For the sins of the whole world, or for the whole world, rather. Now, to me, this is one of the most clear passages in all of Scripture, and although there are many, but this is one of the clearest that teach us the doctrine of unlimited atonement, okay? Which is to say simply this, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, atoned for the sins of the world, meaning every man every woman, every boy, and every girl that has ever lived. Christ atoned for their sin. Now, I get it. That might seem obvious to you, right? Based on your own Bible study and the plain reading of the text, that might just seem obvious, and I would agree with that. But there are those, unfortunately, among Christianity that believe and teach differently, okay? There are some who believe and teach what is called limited atonement, Limited atonement is the belief that Christ only atoned for the sins of some, not all. 
Okay, however, when they get to texts like this in 1 John 2.2, then what happens is they're forced to explain away the text in order to support their view, rather than just simply using the text to support and explain and prove that doctrine. Okay? Now, at least from all the arguments for unlimited atonement that I've heard, that seems to be the case. Okay? And I've heard a lot of them. Because this belief in limited atonement, what it does is it forces you into situations where you have to say one thing and believe another. For example, those who adhere to this view, they would say, well, yes, God, for, you know, for God so loved the world. That's John 3.16. Absolutely. But that's what they would say. But what they believe is this doesn't really mean the whole world. Right. At least not in the same way. I mean, God doesn't love everybody the same way, at least not in regard to salvation. That's their view. That's un, that's limited atonement. OK, but I would most certainly disagree with that. Now, I do believe that God uses people in different ways in regard to service. But when it comes to salvation and whether or not God loves everybody with the same salvific love, I would say absolutely yes, without a doubt, 100%. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, the word says whoever. And the reason that they can come is because Christ has propitiated for their sins. It's very important that we understand that. Christ propitiated for the sins of the whole world. Okay, now obviously much, much more could be said on that topic. But so I don't bore you to death. And for the sake of time, I'm going to move on from that debate. But let me just say this. At Community Church, we teach the unlimited atonement of Christ. Because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. We teach that Christ died for everyone. And that His blood provides atonement for everyone. Every single person that has ever lived all throughout time. And therefore, here's the deal. We can actually look every person that we meet straight in the eye and tell them that Jesus loves you. He does. Christ died for you. And you know what? We can mean that. We can actually mean that. And so we're going to let those who believe that Christ only died for some people live with that inconsistency and tension of their own doctrine. I mean, I can't imagine looking somebody in the eye and telling them that Jesus loves them while at the same time not knowing if what I just said is really true. How sad. How dishonest with both yourself and them. Okay? But of course we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who take that view. We just vehemently disagree with them that the Bible teaches it. Okay? So this word propitiation. What does it mean? Well, the word propitiation that, that John uses here in regard to what Jesus has done for our sin, it, it's a fantastic Bible word. I'm so glad that the New King James has left it in. I think it's worth learning. This, this is the Greek word halasmos. Okay? That's what propitiation is. And it means to appease. It means to atone. Because a propitiator is someone who actually makes amends. It's someone who expiates which means to make amends. In other words, to propitiate means to satisfy. That's what the word means. And Christ himself, think about it like this, Christ himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Okay, And not only ours, but also for the whole world. So what does all this mean? 
Well, it means that Christ satisfied God's holy wrath toward our sin. Think about that for a minute. God's not mad at us. Christ has made amends for us through his own sacrifice on the cross. Cross. Christ has built a bridge back home to the Father. It means God's righteous anger toward the sins of the world has been satisfied through the sacrifice of his son. Our sin has been paid for. It has been expiated by Christ's sacrifice. To say it simply, you could say the love of God has satisfied the wrath of God. Christ propitiating our sins means that there is a way out of this mess that we're in. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. No, that's called universalism. We don't believe or teach that. But what this means is that Christ's atonement is sufficient to save everybody. But it's efficient to save only those who believe. Okay, another way to say this is Christ's atonement extends to everyone. However, it's only applied to those who put their faith in Christ. Okay, I like what Pastor David Guzik said here. He said it this way. He said, though Jesus made his propitiation for the whole world, yet the whole world is not saved and in fellowship with God. This is because atonement does not equal forgiveness. That's worth repeating. Atonement does not equal forgiveness. The Old Testament day of atonement, Leviticus 16.34, demonstrates this. When the sin of all Israel was atoned for every year at the day of atonement, yet not all Israel was saved. He's exactly right. The intent of the atonement is provisional, meaning it's provided for all. However, the application of the atonement is particular. It's only applied to those who repent and believe, okay? So please don't ever let anybody tell you that Christ didn't die for you. That's not what the Bible teaches, okay? There is enough grace for you. Christ's blood is enough. I hope you know that there is a seat at the table for you at the wedding feast in heaven. If you come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you have the wedding garments on, you get into the wedding. Guys, Christ couldn't do any more than what he's already done. Okay, and I can tell you based on the authority of God's word that he died for you. When Christ hung on that cross and he was suffering for the sins of the world, he was being mocked, he was being blasphemed, there was a sign that was hanging above his head. And it was meant as an accusation, but you remember what that sign said? It said, this is the king of the Jews. That's what the sign said. But also that sign was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And you can read about that in Luke 23, 38 if you'd like to. Now, of course, Hebrew, that was the language of God's chosen people. Okay, but Greek and Latin were the two most prominent language, languages in the known world at that time. So hang on to that thought. The sign hanging over the head of Christ at his cross, written in those languages. Now go back to Simeon. You remember him? The birth of Christ? 
You remember what Simeon said upon seeing Christ at his birth. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he wasn't going to see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. That's Luke 2.26. And when Simeon did see Jesus, he took him up in his arms and he said this. Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Amen. Now go back to the cross. When Christ hung there, On his cross, bleeding out his precious blood, after the Jews had rejected him as their Messiah, everyone was there. Everyone was there. And they could read the sign because it was written in their language. This is the king of the Jews. And that signified that Christ's death is sufficient to save everyone who would believe, whether Jew or Gentile. Guys, Christ provided salvation for all peoples, just like Simeon said. When I titled this message, I titled it, That You May Not Sin, because John just gives us such a clear teaching on that in verse 1. I felt like it was an appropriate title, but I want to end this message with an emphasis on verse 2. Because John gives us such a clear teaching on that too. Let me just sum this up and we're done. To sum up 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, you could say this, Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ died for me. You can tell somebody else that. You can look anybody else you want to in the face and tell them honestly and mean it. Jesus Christ died for you. He did. You can believe that and you can teach that because that's what the Bible says. Father, we love you and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the clear teaching tonight on the simple fact that those of us who are in Christ, we have actually the power and ability now through Christ to refrain from sinning. You have given us the power and the victory over the power of sin. And not just that, Lord. We know that when we do blow it, and because of our sin nature, we will. You have given us that provision. You have given us the hope of knowing that Christ is our advocate, the parakletos, the comforter, the one advocating on behalf of us in the courtroom of heaven before the Father, according to your righteousness, not our own. Lord, we have no hope of heaven in our own righteousness. We can't get to the wedding feast. We can't get to the banquet without the wedding garments. And you have provided that for us through your own righteous blood that was shed on the cross. And so now everybody who turns from their sin and turns to Jesus Christ by faith essentially is putting on that wedding garment that will grant them entrance into the wedding feast of heaven. We look forward to that day, Lord. And we are so grateful that in the meantime, even now, you're advocating on our behalf. 
Lord, that gives us comfort and assurance that in Christ we do have eternal life. It's not temporary. This isn't something we can mess up or blow or lose or whatever because it's nothing we did. Christ has done it all. You have given us the gift of eternal life. And that gift begins the moment we are born again, the moment we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, and it never ends. We are so thankful for that hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for your cross. Thank you, Lord, for, again, being our advocate before the Father. Thank you for being our comforter, for not only taking our sin, removing our sin, but comforting us as sinners. We love you, Lord. Help us to live for you. Help us to get into your word and live it out as best we can with the help that you provide through the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.